Amen and amen. If you have your Bible, uh, would you open up with me to the book of Acts? Acts chapter 16. Uh, we're continuing on in our series sent that we've been in for uh, several weeks here. And um, for those of you who are just joining us, we've been looking at the early church and uh, really the journey of living on mission that we've seen here in Scripture. And uh, how many of you in here like history in any way, shape, or form? You, you, just, you like to know about it, you like to hear it. Well, um, you're, you're talking 300 years or less beyond the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven Christianity had spread like crazy, and scholars and biblical historians tell us that Christianity had covered or converted more than half of the Roman Empire in less than 300 years from the moment of Christ's ascension into heaven. And it all started with 12 guys on a hillside with no power and no money and no endowment funds and no celebrity recognition, nothing. There was just a group of 12 guys that had absolute conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead and in a power poured into them called the Holy Spirit. That was it. Those were the two things. And the key was that every person, not just a handful of specialized apostles, every believer or follower of Jesus Christ carried the message. Every one of them. Now, we've, we've looked at how the author of Acts, uh, Luke, one of the disciples, he seems to go out of his way to show us that ordinary people, not ordained apostles, uh, but ordinary people are the ones that spread the message. But what does evangelism by normal people look like? What does that look like? And today, Acts chapter 16 is going to show us exactly what that looks like. And it's going to give us a picture of what ordinary evangelism looks like. Now, we are going to begin down in verse number 13 of chapter 6. Verse number 13. And I encourage you, uh, especially... Um, those of you who uh, wouldn't maybe typically take notes, I'm going to encourage you today uh, to take notes about what we're going to talk about. Uh, every single week, not just this week, but every week I, I would encourage you to take notes, but especially today. Now, if your neighbor, I want you to turn to your neighbor, and if your neighbor doesn't have something out to take notes, I want you to look at them and I want you to judge them. No, I was just joking. Don't, please don't do that. Please, no, I'm just, I'm just, just, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. We're going to observe in today's passage of Scripture three gospel conversations with three different people or persons of interest. I want us to look, starting now in verse 13, I want us to see this first individual, and it says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, were supposed, uh, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart 
to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And if you have a physical Bible, I want you to underline the phrase, pay attention. Pay attention. And we're going to stop right here in verse 14. For those of you who have uh, your notebooks out, I want you to write down the name Lydia. Write down the name Lydia. Now, who was Lydia? Lydia was this wealthy businesswoman in the text. I I want you to think of Lydia as the put-together, driven, brilliant, well-known, well-respected woman in Thyatira. That was Lydia. She's religious, but she is not a Christ follower. So how does she get saved? How does she get saved? Paul engaged with Lydia. It says that they had a conversation with her. This was like an evangelistic Bible study. And while he is speaking to her, the text says that God opened her heart. Go back to verse 14. It says in verse 14, uh, halfway through, it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And that word pay attention, the reason why I asked you to underline that word if you have a physical Bible, because it comes from the Greek word prosecco, which means to respond to truth. I'm responding to some truth that has been spoken to us. Now look at verse 15. It says that after she she responded to what Paul said, she was baptized and her household as well, and she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this is the first gospel conversation that we see in the text with Lydia. Now we're going to look at the second one quickly here. And the second one's going to start right in verse number 16. And so it says, and as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Now, going back to that place, they were where they started was their evangelism. They started evangelizing to Lydia first, and now they're going to a place of prayer. Now, this girl here, this slave girl that they encounter is the opposite of Lydia. Scholars tell us that this girl was a teenager when they encountered her. She's demon-possessed. She's a slave, which means that she is spiritually and economically captive in that day and age. She's busted up. She's taken advantage of, and she's not on her way to the prayer meeting. They are, but she's not. First, she could not go into the prayer meeting if she wanted to. She was a slave. Slaves were not allowed into the synagogue. And second, she has no interest in going. So I want us to look at verse 17. It says that this the slave girl, she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This girl, and please do not miss this, This girl is attracted to the faith, but she's also antagonistic towards it. And a lot of people in these types of captivity are that way. There is something about the gospel message that draws them in, but they have a mistrust or an anger or a frustration within them every time that truth is spoken. Now look at verse 18, and it says, And this she kept doing for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, 
I love how honest Luke was. Paul became greatly annoyed and he turned and he said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. And so how does this specific girl get saved? Well, Paul performs a miracle. He throws the demon out, which also removes her as a circus act that her masters can make money on. So we see Lydia was, was met with Paul in an evangelistic Bible study and she gets saved. The slave girl was slayed because an act of God, a miracle occurred in her life. Now I want us to look at the third gospel conversation. Something completely different. Pick up in verse number 19. And when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Verse 23, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Now here we meet the third person, the Philippian jailer. Who is the Philippian jailer? Jailers were often highly decorated Roman soldiers who, as a retirement gift, they were given a jail to run. Imagine that's your retirement gift from spending a lifetime of service. They're like, here, we're going to give you a jail that you can now oversee, right? The, the jailers are the, the older, the hardened men. They're part of the ruling class. They're the cynical Roman soldiers. And this man puts Paul and Silas into the inner prison. The inner prison is usually the lowest part of the building. It's the most disgusting part of the building. And without being too graphic, to help us understand, the lowest and most disgusting part of the building is where all the fecal matter ran into. That's where they were chained, in the basement of the jail. It's dark, it stinks, it's disgusting. Their feet are in stocks. Now, I don't want you to think modern stocks, right? Because we automatically associate someone going to jail with what we see on TV today in our, our day and age where they put you in handcuffs and then once they put you into the cell, oftentimes they'll take the handcuffs off of you and you're left there. No, Paul and Silas were put in chains that were suspended from the ceiling. They would lay you on your back. They would hook your ankles into clamps and they would pull you upside down so you hung upside down from the stocks. And then they would strike you on the bottom of your feet so if you ever broke out, you wouldn't be able to walk. That's what Paul and Silas are walking through. Unbelievably painful. Now I want you to look at verse 25. And it says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Man, we're hanging upside down in a smelly jail cell by our ankles and our feet are in pain. And it says that we are praying and we are singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake 
And so the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are still here. And so here's the question for us this morning. Why is Paul still there? The doors are open. The chains have been removed from their feet. Why is Paul still in the jail? I mean, he's innocent. Uh, He shouldn't even be in prison. But the walls are down. The, The chains are off. Wasn't this an act of God? This earthquake, wasn't it to get Paul and Silas out? Hadn't this just happened to Peter four chapters ago? The earthquake happens. Peter walks out uh, of the prison. Paul recognized something. He recognized that him being in that prison was a part of God's plan to reach the church at Philippi. It was part of his plan. He hadn't he prayed that God would use him to reach the people? Didn't he already ask God to do that? And, And if this was a part of God's plan to eventually reach the church at Philippi, and it was to put him into prison so that he could suffer well before the Philippian jailer, and then to tell him the reason that he was so joy-filled, then that was the price that Paul was willing to pay. I'll suffer for the name of God. I'll suffer. And so Paul stands there with his freedom He stands there and on his right hand, a freedom that he deserves. And then on the other side, a cruel man who had tortured him the night before. And Paul turns to that Philippian jailer. And he said, we're still here. We're not gone. Don't kill yourself. Now I want us to look at verse 29 and see what happens. And the jailer called for lights And rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and he baptized them at once, he and all of his family. And then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. We're going to stop right there for today. Because this chapter, Acts 16 contains the story of these three individual people who get saved. Now surely there are probably a ton of people that trusted Christ as their Savior during Paul's time in Philippi. So why include these three specific stories? Why point these three individuals out to us? And that's always a question that we should ask when we read the Bible. And why is this included? Why are these stories here for us? What can we learn from them? And there's really two reasons. There's two reasons that we have that tell us why these stories are included. And the first reason is to show us something about the gospel. That's why these stories, to show us something about the gospel. That's why they're here. And namely, 
that very reason to show us something about the gospel is to tell us that the gospel is for everybody. That, that's what it's to tell us, is that the gospel is for everybody. There are three completely different kinds of people talked about in this one chapter. The rich people, the religious woman, the slave girl, the Philippian jailer. These are different kinds of people. There is no type church in becoming a Christian. You don't have to be a certain type of person in order to receive Jesus Christ and the free gift that he offers. You know, people have said to me before, well, I'm, I'm just not the Christian type. That makes me chuckle a little bit inside. You're not the Christian type. Well, there's only one creator. There's only one father, God. And we all have one problem, and that's sin. And they only have one hope, and that's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's our hope. And because of that, the, the church is to be a place where people of vastly different types find a unity that is under the lordship of Jesus Christ that you cannot find anywhere else in this world. Amen? Each one of us have characteristics about ourselves that make us feel proud. Do you know that every single morning, Jewish men rise and pray uh, a recorded prayer that we find in ancient prayer books called the Siddur. And that prayer says, Thank you, God, that I am not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Jewish men pray this every morning. I mean, Jewish men then, and even still now in some capacity, feel as though they are lifted up above these three kinds of people. But look who gets saved. The, the, the woman, the slave, and the Philippian jailer, the Gentile. In the church, man, women and slaves and Gentiles and rabbis now sit together as brothers and sisters in Christ. All of mankind, the, the rich and the poor, and the black and the white, and the young and the the old and the conservative and the liberal and the religious and the irreligious from good families and, and from broken families, we all now gather together under the, the name of Jesus Christ as one of his children when we believe and accept the free gift. Why? Because we all have the same problem and it's sinfulness and we all have the same path to heaven and that's Jesus Christ. And I don't know who you are this morning or, or how, you, how far you've fallen or, or where you've come from in your life. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you confess that with your mouth and you believe that in your heart, the Bible tells us that you will be saved. The same exact Lord overall is rich in mercy. Amen. To all who call upon him. And so these stories show us something about the gospel. The second reason that they're given to us is to give us a glimpse of different people in our own city and show us how we're to reach them. In our own communities, that's the second reason. Is to give us a glimpse of different people right here in Ionia and Saranac and, and Lowell and Lyons and Muir and Fenwick or where, Orleans or Belding, wherever it is that you come from, there are different people in our community that need to be reached. And each one is reached in a little bit of a different, uh, different way. 
And so for those of you note takers, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, explain to you or break down these three people and how we reach them. The first person I want you to write down is the Lydia. She's the spiritually interested person in our communities. Uh, she thinks of herself as the religious person. And so how do you engage the religious person? Like, how does that even happen? All right, Paul engaged Lydia. I want you to look back with me in the text. Look back, go back to verse number 13. It says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed, supposed there was a place for prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the woman who came together. And one who heard of us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, she was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what? To what Paul said. To the things that Paul said. And so Paul engaged Lydia in a spiritual conversation and he studied the Bible with her. That's what he did. You know, there are a lot of people here in our communities that fit that very profile. The people that have uh, a Christian background. Sometimes not, but sometimes they're the spiritual people from other belief systems or, or religions. Sometimes they're active in church. A lot of times they're not. But in some way, shape, or form, they are connected to some version or form of Christianity. But for whatever reason, those individuals are open to having spiritual conversations with you. And the best way to reach them, church, expose them to truth. That's the best way to reach them. And how do you do that? How do you expose them to truth? Invite them to church. Make sure they get here. Invite them to read the Bible with you. Invite them to read a, a good theological book. None of the junk that's out there that we just see at Baker Bookhouse and we're like, oh, it's in the Christian bookstore, so it's good. No, not, that's not what I'm talking about. Read, read a book that is solid in what it teaches. And as you do that, what are you looking for is for God to open that individual's heart just like he did to Lydia's. He opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. Now, I love the phrase... I love that phrase that it said that the Lord opened Lydia's heart because it takes the pressure off you and I. It does. It just takes the pressure right off of us. I mean, God is the one who does the convincing. I'm just putting the words out there. That's it. I'm being led by the Holy Spirit and putting the words out there. And a lot of people think that the only ones who can be effective evangelists are extreme extroverts who are like vacuum cleaner salesmen. And that's not true. I mean, salvation belongs to God, and so the pressure's not even on you at all. I mean, believing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, that's where your responsibility lies. We reach the first person by sharing truth. If they, if they haven't heard the word of God or they haven't heard truth, then the responsibility is there for you to tell it to them. But here's the problem. For most people, 
for most Christians, for most churches, that's where evangelism ends up stopping. That's it. Just the person who's open to having the, the conversation about Christianity. That's where evangelism typically stops. Someone who rejects it right away or, or right out of the gate at first, we automatically become intimidated and we shut down and we just walk away and we're like, well, they're on their way to hell and there's nothing I can do about it. That, that's typically the, men we may not say it that way, but that's typically the way that we respond and react to it. But there is another kind of person that is not going to be reached by you inviting them to church. And that's the slave girl. The slave girl is the physically and the spiritually captive individual. And they're not going to be reached because you said, hey, come to service at the well at 1030 on Sunday. That's not how they're going to be reached. The slave girl is not showing up for prayer. That's not it. I mean, physically, she cannot show up for prayer. And every year, there are more and more people who are not going to church. I spoke to a friend of mine just recently who lived in, um, in the UK for about 15 years. And they were citing to me a recent study that had been done in the United Kingdom in which that, that study showed that 70% of the UK say they have no intention of ever attending a church service for any reason. 70%. Not at Easter, not at Christmas, not for marriages, not for funerals, nothing. 70% of the UK says that they do not want to set foot in a church. And you know what he said to me? He said that number means that new styles of worship all the crazy lights and the smoke machines and, and the funky colored walls and, and the cool carpet and, and the thousands and thousands of dollars for really cool hands. Those things are not reaching those people. Fresh expressions of church are not reaching that 70% of people. Great first impressions are not reaching that 70% of people. Church meetings and, and really cool buildings are not reaching them. The vast majority of unchurched and de-churched people would not turn to the church even if they are faced with difficult personal circumstances or even in the event of a national tragedy. And so it's not a question of improving the product of a church or a meeting or an evangelistic event. It means reaching people apart from Sunday morning. It means reaching people outside of the context of these four walls. Did you know that the UK is just a few years ahead of the United States in secularization? But where Great Britain is, is clearly where the United States is heading to. And it's rapidly going in that direction. And so each year, each year, the, the pie of people in our communities who will come to church for special events is shrinking. Day by day, it is shrinking. And if we as a body, including the people that are not here today, if we don't learn how to carry the gospel outside of this meeting, we're going to lose them all. We're going to lose them all. 
and what I think that we're going to see in the future is a lot of new flashy mega churches fighting over larger pieces of the shrinking pie of bored Christians. But for those of us who want to reach the rest of the culture, we need to think about growing the pie. And that means that you and I have to get good at carrying the gospel outside of our church. Because each year the amount of people checking none for religious affiliation on censuses around the globe, but specifically in our country, increases at an astounding rate. The nuns, not N-U-N, like the ladies in the black gown, no, the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, as they are called, are not casually making their way into churches really for any reason at all. It's almost like we're dealing with a people of a completely different religion. And so how are we going to get these two groups in a society engaged in the gospel? The, the physical and the spiritual captive, how are, we, how are they reached? They're not reached by having better music or because I tell funny stories. They'll be reached by us being in the prisons and by us being in the community and working with the homeless and, and working with rave, our relief after violent encounter shelter, that's where they're going to be reached. Us being in those places with a hope inside of us that brings about a joy in the midst of our hard times. They can't come to us. We have to go to them. And then we come to our third, our third person or people that we're going to encounter in our communities and that's the Philippian jailer and they're the skeptics. Any skeptics in here this morning? You're, you're even skeptical about raising your hand in church. I know there are more because I've had conversations with you. The skeptical. This is the guy who's saved because of two reasons. The Philippian jailer was saved because he observed Paul and Silas's joy in the midst of their pain. Uh, I mean, he was the recipient of a grace that was unexplainable in this one moment of time. Paul recognized that God appointed this suffering so that he could reach this man. Just this one individual, which is why Paul did not run from it when the earthquake occurred. You know, instead Paul chose to do two things in the midst of that earthquake. He chose to keep giving praise to God and to show extraordinary grace. Do you guys remember what it said? It said that Paul was singing hymns and praying when the earthquake was happening. But what if, church, what if in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of loss, what if our first thought was not, God, what have I done wrong? What if our first thought was, God, whose life are you trying to use me in? I mean, because I have conversations all the time with people. And when they're in the midst of some storm, their immediate response is, God, I've, what have I done wrong? What, have I, what, am, what did I do? 
what did I do? And then they're looking for some promise of God to give you comfort. And, and then you just randomly flip open your Bible and you're like, God, speak to me. And you do the, the Bible lottery thing and, and you just randomly open to a random page in the Bible and you land in Leviticus and you're like, see, I knew God hated me. I knew it. And that's, that's how we attempt to overcome our, our moments of weakness instead of turning to John 16, in the world you will have tribulations but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Why not turn to that passage? Why not turn to Deuteronomy 31, 8? The Lord is with you always. He does not forsake you nor does he leave you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Why are we not turning to that? I mean, that's an incredible promise that's given to us. Why do we not realize that the pain is a part of how Jesus is overcoming the world? That the pain is there to help someone else see the hope and the joy that you have in God in the midst of your pain. And then do exactly what he said in John 16, be of good cheer. Be joy-filled. Church, there's two things about your pain. Two things about your suffering. It doesn't matter what kind of suffering it is. Whether it's the loss of life, a divorce, the loss of a child, an argument or a fight you just got in, offense, unforgiveness. It does not matter. Depression, anxiety, worry, fear. It does not matter. There are two things that we have to know about our pain. We have to see it coming, and we should never be surprised by it. Never. We shouldn't. God told Paul, I'm appointing you to make a name for me among the Gentiles, and a part of that is including in suffering. That, that's what that is. The psalm writer wrote in Psalm 112, the righteous have no fear of bad news because their heart is steadfast trusting in the Lord. We have no fear of bad news whatsoever. We were just talking in our small group on Thursday night about this very thing. We were talking about how we have hope in hard times. And one of the individuals in our small group uh, said, when bad things come, my family asks me, how is it that you have a smile on your face? Or why are you acting that way? You should be crying or you should be... And, and the person's like, no, I... I I know the Lord is going to work it out. I don't know how always, but I know the Lord is going to work it out however he sees fit. And so I have a question. This verse, Psalm 112, the righteous have no fear of bad news because their hearts are steadfast trusting in the Lord. Does that describe you? Does it describe you? If you know that God has appointed you to overcome the world and the way that he does that is not just by delivering you from adversity, but delivering you in adversity so that you can show other people that you have a hope that goes way beyond this world, way beyond it. You and I every day have to make a choice just like Paul and Silas to never cease praising God. We have to. We have to choose. You're not always going to feel like praising God. Amen? 
You guys ever been in that place? I don't feel like praising God today. I don't feel like reading my Bible today. I don't feel like praying. Well, guess what? Your feelings are probably wrong because oftentimes they are. You're going to have to say when you don't feel like praising, when you don't feel like praying, when you don't feel like you're going to have to say with David, God, you are good. You're going to have to say with Habakkuk, though nobody else, Lord, is following, I will. We have to say with Jeremiah, who felt like the Lord was a bear and a lion waiting to maul and dismember him. He said, Lord, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Great is thy faithfulness. I think sometimes... In the midst of our pain, we forget that we have a God, we serve a God that can take you through your storm. We, we forget that in the midst of our suffering, that God is waiting to give you comfort. He's waiting. We forget also that we are supposed to take that same comfort that he gave to us and give it to somebody else. Paul and Silas were in prison and they were praying and they were singing. Why? Because the prisoners were listening to them. That's why. And so why do I oftentimes stand on this platform and, and tell you that in the midst of your pain and your suffering that we need to focus on truth? That we need to speak that truth out, out loud? Why do I do that? Because the way that we worship, the way that we put on display our belief in promises in the word of God will be the way that people see how much you love God and how much God has done in your life. I know that you and I, there's probably not many people in here that could match my level of enthusiasm when it comes to the things of God. Maybe some of you. And so I get it. I understand that our personalities are probably nowhere even remotely close to being on the same plane. And that's okay. But some of you shout your heads off at football games. I've heard you. I've personally sat next to you while that happened. Some of you can argue with what's going on on the TV and you can go to concerts and, and get really loud and, and sing the song super, super, super loud. Listen, no sports player, no celebrity, no, no singer is going to be at your hospital bedside during your trial saying, when I walk through the fire, I will be with you. And these waters will not, no, no, none of those people are going to be there for you. We yell for the football player and the singer and we argue with the, the person on TV, but God deserves louder praise and greater exuberance in our life than anything else. And our, our pain and our unfortunate circumstances are a chance for us to put our hope and our joy in God on display for the people around us. Because Pain and tragedy are our best chances to be a witness. 
This past Wednesday, we had a celebration of life for one of our church members right here. There were 100 plus people that showed up. I was not only encouraged uh, by the amount of people that came, but I couldn't believe how many conversations I was able to have after the fact that in the midst of people's loss, in the midst of their grief, in the midst of their pain, you want to know what they wanted to find comfort in? God. They wanted God. In the midst of tragedy, heartache, pain, we have the best opportunity to be a witness of hope. You know, I, for one, and I say this with all the love and the respect in the world, I, for one, am tired of seeing the worst of Christians come out in the midst of suffering. Uh, I'm really just kind of sick of it. How come we don't resolve that in the worst of the worst, that the best of the best comes out of us because of the greatest of the greatest? I... I understand that there are probably some of you here this morning that are dealing with bad marriages. I I recognize that there are probably people sitting in this room right now that are dealing with a tough job situation or a child that's gone wayward or a friend who's cut you off. I recognize that there could be people sitting in this room right now that are dealing with chronic health issues or uh, living with offense or you've been a victim uh, in some way, shape, or form. I understand that. And I'm not telling you to not do what you can to remedy the situation. But if we read the remainder of chapter 16... Paul actually begins to protest his arrest. But what what I'm saying that each one of us needs to do is to not lose the joy of our possession of Christ. Because other people are watching you. They're watching you. And like I said last week, we have opportunities to to show extravagant grace to people. Extravagant grace. Nothing, church, puts the gospel on display like grace in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our trials and our loss. Nothing. Nothing puts the gospel on display like grace. And so the challenge this morning for each one of you as we get ready to pray and depart, the the challenge for you this morning is, is really kind of twofold. One, what are you doing to prepare to share the gospel with the Lydia's and the slave girls and the Philippian jailers? And two, am I living my life where Christ is constantly on display no matter what is going on around me? Those are questions that you have to answer between you and the Lord. So are you doing those two things? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you right now and I just thank you, Lord, that you have given us a passage of Scripture that really speaks to three separate people groups that we find right here in our communities. 
people that we need to reach and, and God as we begin to navigate and walk through the next several months here in our church and begin to, to focus on our community and, and how we can reach them. Lord, I ask that you would prepare us to reach the people here. Um, and in the, in the people in, in Lyons and Muir and Saranac and where, wherever else we have people, Lord, prepare us uh, to reach these three groups of people. Lord, help us to, to know that in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our trials that we can live with hope because we know that this earth is not our final home. Someone just said to me this, this last week that we are all strangers here. We are all strangers. We're just passing through. And so God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on heavenly things from above. And in the midst, God, of our worry, our anxiety, our fear, our pain, our loss. God, that we would come to you and think on what is true. And what is noble and what is praiseworthy and what is of good report. God, that we can recall to mind that you are faithful and good and that you don't leave us or forsake us. Let us never lose sight of your promises, Lord. Let us be of good cheer as, as we go and depart from here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.